What's up, everybody? Hello, hello, and welcome to Space Talk. Uh, whether this is your first time here or you've been here plenty of times, um, I hope you came in the mood to talk a little bit about space um, and everything that has to do with space, whether it's rockets or astronomy or space exploration, going to another planet. Um, I hope you are ready to chat about that. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Athena Brentsberger, and uh, I also go by the name of Astro Athens, which is a brand I started a few years ago uh, that is online specifically. I actually started as a YouTube channel and expanded that to my website and um, all different social media things, making DIY astrophysics demos for kiddos and also working with different schools and making tons of content covering rocket launches live. Basically anything you could kind of think about that has to do with space. Um, I try to make as much, um, I guess, video, audio, visual content around it so that more people can learn about what's out there. There is a lot out there. Um, and so that being said, um, if you haven't listened to our most recent interview with Dr. Intergalactic, I recommend going back and checking out that episode. It was two episodes ago. And uh, he is such an incredible human being who has made this massive uh, media company called Ad Astra, which is what I always say at the end of every episode of Space Talk, which means to the stars. And it um, is such an incredible uh, media company that is really looking to expand its outreach. They are already doing that and reaching so many kids around the globe and adults. So that's just a little uh, th thing I want to just throw out there real quick um, in case you guys haven't listened and you want to get involved. If you want to get involved in the space community, but maybe in the communication side, maybe you love science, but maybe you don't want to conduct research. And that's perfectly great and okay. In fact, it's better than okay because um, places like NASA have communication departments and they also hire illustrators and artists and graphic designers. Um, so all of this really plays an important role. So maybe in the future we can do actually an episode kind of talking about the different ways that you can get involved um, within the science community. So whether that's STEM outreach or it's specifically working with NASA, we'll, we'll chat about that. Uh, one more announcement before I jump into our historical figures for today is our second in interview is going to be on Friday. And um, that interview I'm really excited about because it is exactly kind of what I just mentioned, which is this combination between art and science, this opportunity to work as a creative in the science industry. So I'll be interviewing the founder of a Brazilian fashion brand called Nave, and it is a, a space fashion brand specifically. Um, and so I'm really excited to share his story, learn a little bit more about him. And of course, if you guys want to listen, you can join um, that call. It'll be at 3 p.m. Um, on Friday. So I'm super stoked for that. So let's go ahead and just jump into it now that I see I've got a few listeners here. So we started this ongoing series called Historical Figures. And the reason I started this was because every Monday we talk about space history, different historical events that happened within that week. And um, I've just really want to share the stories of a couple of the first individuals we spoke about, such as Johannes Kepler, Charles Messier, and um, now I want to get into some more historical figures. So last week we did Annie Jump Cannon, and now we're going to talk about Hypatia. Now we're going really far back, like ancient astronomy far back, but the reason why I wanted to highlight Hypatia is because um, 
she not only was a very, um, I would almost say like progressive figure for the time where she was one of the only or very few women who were educated in math and science and was actually teaching and was respected amongst the community and was looked to for wisdom. And this wasn't necessarily the case when it came to math and science in the early years. But what also was interesting was that this happened during the fall of Alexander. And so the um, the uh, Alexandria Library ended up being for the most part, destroyed. And so there were some artifacts that were preserved, um, but not a lot. And so something else, um, so I wanted to highlight that because there was just so much happening during this time period. Um, she was in Egypt at the time, so this is ancient Ptolemaic Egypt. And um, with all this controversy and, and politics and religion, uh, you have these incredible, incredible explorations of science and math. And it really makes you wonder if only that library was still standing, how much more um, just uh, information, discoveries, mathematical models were found within those scrolls. Uh, really makes you think about that. Um, now, what's interesting, when I first uh, had heard about her was, well, an astronomy class in, in high school, but recently uh, she came back into my my life because of a movie, a Netflix movie, which um, it's called Agora, A-G-O-R-A, came out in 2009. And it's really interesting. I'm sorry, maybe it's not Netflix, it's Amazon. Sorry, it's Amazon Prime. Um, there is quite a lot of historical inaccuracies in the movie. So if you are a history buff and it would drive you crazy to watch a movie that is, uh, has some inaccuracies, Maybe don't watch it, but um, I did enjoy it for the most part um, and did end up researching a ton of stuff afterwards and, and learning about some of the things that were just not not too accurate. But um, it does have, I think, a pretty good story there as far as, uh, again, painting the scene of what was going on during this time. But something incredible that came out of Hypatia was an instrument called an astrolabe. Now, there is quite a lot of debate of when Astrolabe was actually created, and most likely it actually was created way before her, um, and it was used specifically for, uh, I think at the time it was mainly to do astronomical observations, but when she had, in a way, reinvented it, she just made, made some adjustments to it. She used it for uh, sailing. So the way that she invented it, re or reinvented it, created it, was actually to use it for um, for sailors. So uh, before that time period, I'll get into what the astrolabe does exactly, but before uh, she ended up reconstructing it, it was mainly used to tell the time of the day or at night to also identify the time of sunrise and sunset and also the length of the day and then eventually to locate celestial objects in the sky. That last component is what what, what it's how I learned about it is to be able to identify objects in the sky because I've made them before. You can actually make it yourself. It's really easy. Um, and if you wanted to look up images of an astrolabe, so it's spelled A-S-T-R-O-L-A-B-E, you'll see that it looks kind of complicated. It's like, looks like a huge, like kind of brass or copper or metallic disc. It's actually, it was made of brass. Uh, and it has all these interchangeable plates, which are different areas of the sky. 
And so different parts of what they said at the time was a celestial sphere. Now, this is really early. This is about 370 AD. Um, So this time period is, uh, yeah, they they were understood the sky to be filled with these finite points um, of stars. And it's called the celestial sphere or the heavens above. So this being said, you would have these interchangeable plates to know where things were located. And these were star maps, early, early star maps. So that's what you'd probably find online if you Googled astrolabe. If you look up maybe astrolabe like DIY or just, you know, how to handcraft one or, or do like an arts and crafts project, you'll see it looks a little bit more like a protractor. So it has this 90 degree angle and then a curve connecting each angle. And what you would use is um, either a ruler, maybe even a protractor, and you would dash lines on the curved area from zero up to 90. And this would then um, have a perspective of you holding it directly up to your line of sight. And right at the corner where the 90 degree mark is, you'd have a hole with a string attached and then some kind of paperweight. I ended up using like a space shuttle keychain. Um, and when you do this and you're turning this thing from zero to 90 degrees, which would be directly over your head. So you're angling it. The string would then start to fall along those dashed lines that you drew, basically telling you where things are located. So if you're looking through the eyepiece part, which is the top flat surface, and you see Venus, for instance, usually the most prominent bright object in the night sky other than the moon, and you see where it's located. You want to know exactly what degrees it's at because we speak about the degrees a lot on, on space talk when we're talking about where objects are located. This is an easy way to find that. You have the string falling on the scale of one of these numbers. And when you find Venus with your eyes, you then just hold onto that position, onto the string. You look at where the string fell and then it'll be located. Maybe it's at 45 degrees, maybe it's at 70 degrees. And then that's a really easy way. And you can use it in the opposite direction. You can use it to locate objects too. So this week, as an example, um, let's actually go ahead and pull up my transmission just so that we can use um, an example that's visible this week. We have, here we go. We have the awesome we have I'll, I'll use the beehive open star cluster which is m44 so this is going to be visible on january 31st if you're in the northern hemisphere and you wait for it to reach its highest point which will be just about 30 minutes before 1 a.m central time it's going to be 75 degrees above your southern horizon so if you don't know how to find 75 degrees above your southern horizon by using say just like your fist and kind of estimating where it's located. If you want to be very accurate, build one of these really simple astrolabes. And, um, I, you know, I'll do another DIY video sort of explaining how to do it. I, I did it once before, but I believe it actually was for um, like an exclusive video for a school. So I'll have to dig that up again and maybe remake it because it's just really fun to learn how to make these. And you point it at the sky and then you angle this astrolabe until the string is at the 75 degree mark. And then you look through the eyepiece and wherever it's pointing, 
make sure you're facing south, though. That should be exactly where the cluster is. So as I mentioned, it's really straightforward. Um, you might also say, hey, why not just use a protractor? Um, that's a great idea, actually. So <laughs> if you wanted to, you could use a protractor. The only thing is you'd have to find a way to either maybe tape or make a hole of um, where you would put the string and the paperweight. But you can easily just use a protractor as well um, if you didn't want to build this out yourself. So that being said, this is why I want to get into Hypatia. So Hypatia, as I mentioned, um, so right now historians believe she was born sometime around 370 AD. Um, but then some people believe that she actually was a little bit older when uh, she died, which was 60 years old. And so that would have been, made her birthday actually closer to 355 AD when she was born. Either way, really, really, really early on. She was the daughter of Theon of Alexandria, and she trained as a mathematician by her father. Um, and then eventually she ended up becoming the leader of uh, mathematics at Alexandria. So she ended up replacing her father in this. And um, she ended up being the last major mathematician of the Alex Alexandria tradition. Now, this was, again, this time period, um, the fall of Alexandria, uh, they're in Egypt, there um just a lot of stuff that's going on. She's Greek. She's part of the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, and it just, yeah, she, she was just part of this entire situation that just ended up be becoming very messy. So imagine kind of like a modern day, um, we have tons of wars and rivalries that are going on around the world. But imagine during that time period that you have um, someone who is, who is absolutely ahead of their times, brilliant working on um, things in astronomy or physics and you have all this other stuff that's kind of going on around you. It can seem like quite a, um, yeah, just, just, just quite a hurdle. So I'm going to get through a little bit more of her history, but I'm going to do a quick moment to pause and play a little bit of music. And I'm actually going to open up this call to any of my listeners who might want to join. So any of you guys who are listening, if you want to join, don't worry about interrupting me. You can just go ahead and hit the call in button. And um, if you want to chime in about anything that I'm mentioning throughout this, um, this journey. So just made that public. Awesome. And let's just do a very quick music intermission and we will hop back into the history of Hypatia. Alrighty, let's jump back into it. Okay, so once again, if um, anyone wanted to join, it looks like we've actually got a caller. Awesome sauce. Let me go ahead and 
take next caller. Lauren, you are on the mic. Unmute yourself when you're ready. Hey there. Hey, so, how's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. So I had a, just kind of a, a, a almost a generic historical question kind of about um, Hypatia. She, now she has come to prominence during a time when uh, women really aren't uh, uh, um, looked at as, as, as people who can lead uh, uh, scientific pursuits or, 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 or a lot of things. So I was wondering how how she was able to get that. Uh, was it just her father's influence or, or was I mean, obviously, she was capable of, of holding that position. But how, what kind of, um, you know, challenges challenges did she face in that day uh, due to being a woman uh, um, heading up that type of um, pursuit? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's such a great point and question because, yeah, during this time, it was not looked at to have someone become not only this uh, leader in mathematics, but also she became a public speaker and she was looked at as a scholar. And this definitely was influence of her father. Um, as I mentioned, being the Theon of Alexandria, a Greek scholar in mathematics, this became a, yeah, just a, a, a very big um he was a public figure. He was huge. And so uh, being the daughter of him, although they took sort of a different approach than I would say probably other stories of, of families, whenever they were like, especially big scholars who would have um, a daughter, they may go down a different route. But this, this, this definitely was a, I would say kind of a rare case. And it is interesting. I don't exactly know why it is that that ended up being the case. Um, I wish I could have sort of lived during this time period and seen what that was like. I would say it probably has something to do with the belief system of um, maybe the Greeks at the time. So kind of believing in uh, they were looked at as like, you know, like, like, uh, uh, like looking at the, like, oh, sorry, what am I trying to say? Like being like being pagans, like like the the, the Roman Empire was like, OK, well, they're not Christians they're not Jews. They're they're following more than one God. This is wrong. This is against all of humanity. And I guess sort of being part of a group that was sort of looked at like that um, allowed for them to sort of expand in different regions and, and look at not just like the masculine being sort of the leaders in, in a lot of the cases. I think it had a lot to do with their belief system. The fact that gods and goddesses both ran and sort of represented these very powerful things in life. Like my name, for instance, Athena being the goddess of wisdom and warfare, not just say like Aphrodite or Venus or all, all these different names that would only represent more so looked at as feminine characteristics. I think it probably had a lot to do with their belief system. That and so, sense. yeah, that, that, that's, that's what I would have to say. But also the fact too, that she was born into a family of, you know, a scholar and mathematician who was uh, really looked up at, uh, looked up to at the time, and the fact that she ended up surpassing him in a lot of her mathematic and astronomy skills, um, and ultimately becoming, uh, yeah, a, a replacement teacher to her father. Very cool. Yeah. Right. So awesome. Well, that was such a great question and such such a good point as well. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to ask, Lauren? Not at the moment. No. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for calling in. Uh, always a pleasure. All right. If anyone else wants to join, you can go ahead and, of course, tap that call in button. Um, but to sort of like look at more of Hypatia's contributions, um, a lot of it had to do with making early maps of objects in the sky. Um, so this was something that led into um, 
you know, not just refining like scientific instruments and writing math textbooks and uh, she ended up doing also, she also ended up uh, developing a more efficient long division method. Uh, I have not explored that just yet as far as what exactly it was she was doing with, with long division, but uh, just personally, that was it was a weakness of mine was long division, but uh, I will explore that sometime. But what's interesting is that she, um, with all this being said, everything I read up on her, she always ended up being this really fearless character in society. She didn't try to hide her her pagan beliefs. So as they saw, she was a pagan and paganism and believed in more than one God. Um, but she didn't try to hide that. She's like, this is my roots. This is what I believe in. This is how I was raised. And that's that. Um, but that was really what led to a lot of trouble as well, not only within the family, but also within her um, her society. I mean, those those who ended up being essentially taken down by um, by the Roman Empire. And so this kind of led to, of course, you know, a lot of division in the country, but um, or in this in this region. So. Uh, going back to the star maps, so she ended up producing some pretty pretty early maps of different objects in the spot, sky, which aided in these star maps that were used in the astrolabe. And so during this time period, you have a lot of philosophers, a lot of astronomers who are trying to basically figure out what we're looking at when we look at the sky. What are these objects? Um they're not gods and, and goddesses. Maybe they're similar to Earth. Maybe like we're actually, yeah, we're during this time period, they were already making mathematical models looking at the Earth being spherical, which is kind of funny because for a very long time, it was understood that the Earth was flat before going into um, exploring other countries. And, and, and you know, like yeah, everyone, everyone sort of knows about the, the, the story of the Mayflower, but for centuries before that, it was already explored to th this idea of Earth being spherical. And so um, what was interesting is it feels like with, you know, a lot of these sort of dark ages that humanity reaches, it causes this like intellectual um, hindering or plateau almost and or, or even loss of information. And so like like the, the, the fall of the library. Um, there probably was a ton of stuff already that maybe we would have been ahead of our time now that, that we currently are at because we would have already understood where our place was within the solar system, where our place was within the universe, and maybe it would have expanded. But that's not how it went down, so no no use in thinking about it any more than, than that. So as far as um, I mentioned the astrolabe, which I thought was really interesting, this was, uh, as I mentioned before, it was originally used um, for measuring, that's uh, kind of interesting, um, for measuring the time of the day, sunrise, sunset, uh, where certain objects are located. Uh, but it was usually originally used in Islam uh, to actually locate when the Salat is, which are the morning prayers, to help schedule when that should happen. And that was, to, to, that's three times a day. And it'd be sunrise, um, sunset, and then during certain rising of certain stars that they saw as fixed in the sky at the time. So another kind of interesting history there. Um, let's see, I'm skimming through my notes real quick. I've, I've, my, my notes are a little bit messy right now, but um, basically that, that's, that's, I would say that's the majority of what I sort of wanted to go into about her. There isn't that much more information about Hypatia other than um, you know, her, her, uh, advancing 
um, not only like the knowledge of her own students, but also doing her own research, her own like studying in astronomy, her own studying of, of philosophy, of what it means to be where we are um, and how that connects to the rest of the universe. And um, that, yeah, that's something I wish we definitely had more on, especially uh, some like archives. I wish we had some of her work. Uh, the most, as I mentioned, we were able to find was sort of her Hypatia's um, like sort of expansiveness on long division. But after that, there there really wasn't much more because a lot of it ended up getting destroyed, which was, which was kind, of a, kind of a bummer. But during the same time was around the time that trigonometry uh, started to be a little bit more expansive and a little bit more understood and a little bit more applied to other things in life, such as, well, the stars. And we didn't have trigonometry. It'd be very difficult to locate where certain stars were to understand where we're located. And so um, that is, um, that's, yeah, that's, that's about everything. I'm going to explore a little bit more about her long division later. And maybe we'll, we'll do, I'll do a video on that because that would be very tough, I would say, to explain via audio only. Um, but that is um, about everything. As far as, uh, yeah, again, the, the astrolabe was something I just really wanted to highlight. Uh, if we want to, if you ever want to make it, it'll be really helpful just to sort of pull that out when stargazing, especially if you're getting used to sort of looking at where things are located in the sky. Um, and I do think it's funny that here I found the exact sentence that I was looking for about her making it for ship navigation. Uh, but even before the astrolabe, uh, when you were sailing when you were exploring uh different areas on just the earth you would you would typically use the stars to navigate um and so if we didn't have gps today if we didn't have street signs we would have to use the stars and knowing where they're located when they rise and we'd have to have that memorized in order to even know how to get to say like you know the 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 local tribe or to find your way home or to find your way to where the food's located uh, so with all that being said, I just wanted to touch on that today, um, just very briefly about sort of the, ex not, not just the, the history of sort of where all this thinking arose about, uh, I would say like even a matter of survival, but also how it expanded um, and how we see a lot through history, throughout history where uh, humanity almost collectively starts to expand in their knowledge and then it gets hindered or it gets stomped or something happens. Um, and that's, that's always, you know, pretty unfortunate, which is why I think people are striving so much to have, you know, just, just peace on earth. I think everyone has heard about this. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember the first time I, I heard about like saying, Oh, like I want for, I want peace on earth. I was like four years old. I just remember thinking like, that sounds great. And it's just been this constant, um, desire for, for all of humanity collectively, because we recognize how much um, we really stop our own advancement when something either like politically, religiously gets in the way, or even just simply like, you know, the not liking differences of each other. That is so, it's just such a not, uh, yeah, such a, such a terrible way to, to try to advance as humanity. But that's about everything. Um, once again, I'm just going to go ahead and, um, you know, if anyone wants to join, you can join. Otherwise, um, I hope to see you all on our next episode, which is going to be launches. So that's going to be tomorrow at 3 p.m. 
We're going to explore what rocket launches are happening in February. I'm hoping to actually, I feel like I've said this every month, I'm hoping to catch a few, but really, sincerely, I mean that it's just so tough because they end up, you know, scrubbing for literally anything because rocket launches are, uh, you know, they're delicate. They can, it can be sensitive. Anything can cause it to be scrubbed. So we're going to go over that tomorrow. So if you're interested to learn about what's launching in February, you can join tomorrow at 3 p.m. And the, as far as what we close off on this week with is Friday at 3 p.m. I'll be interviewing uh, the founder of a, a Brazilian space fashion brand called Nave. Uh, really cool. Uh, I've, I've one of their, I have a few of their shirts actually. I'm going to be wearing at the day of the interview, um, even though you guys won't be able to see it. But that will be on Friday at 3 p.m. as well. And then of course next week we will continue with our usual, uh, usual stuff with our, 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 our yep, our typical uh, episodes and everything we usually chat about. So, on that note, um, I hope you all get to go outside and explore the night sky. And until next time. Ad Astra.